0: Hello, thank you for joining us for this segment of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policies Contours podcast series. I am Minna Joffrey-Linamulder, and today I am joined by two globally recognized experts on the Indian subcontinent, Dr. Syed Muhammad Ali and Akil Barry. Muhammad Ali is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute, and he teaches at several Washington, D.C. area universities, including Georgetown and Johns Hopkins. He is a world-renowned expert on the emerging dynamics of the Indian subcontinent. Muhammad Ali is also a frequent guest on the Contours podcast and a frequent contributor of analysis on the Indian subcontinent and South Asia for the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. Until recently, Akil Berry was the director of South Asia Initiatives at the Asia Society Policy Institute, where his research focused on the political economy of South Asia, including the Sri Lankan economic crisis. Previously, he worked at the Eurasia Group, where he was responsible for the firm's coverage of South Asia. Akhil is a term member on the Council of Foreign Relations and a 2022 Aspen Strategy Group rising leader. Akhil, Muhammad Ali, thank you so much for joining us today. While nuclearized India and Pakistan are two of the largest states in South Asia, smaller countries within the region, like Sri Lanka, have also been the focus of significant international concern recently. The small but relatively prosperous island nation of Sri Lanka is facing a severe economic and political crisis, which brought it to the brink of collapse. The socio-economic situation in Bangladesh is also not as drastic, but it is struggling with authoritarian tendencies, and it is facing enough economic stress to have requested help from the IMF to address its balance payments. Let us now address some of the challenges facing Sri Lanka and Bangladesh in greater detail with our guests, Akil Barry and Sayyid Muhammad Ali. Akhil, I'd like to begin with you. Can we talk a bit about how Sri Lanka managed to achieve the highest human development rankings in South Asia?
1: Of course. And first off, I just wanted to say thank you to both you, Mina and uh, Muhammad Ali, for having me on today. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. So Sri Lanka has often been seen as the highest in terms of human development ranking in South Asia. And comparatively speaking, this has come despite... I would say a low amount of spending on health, education, and a social safety net. There are two real policies that have helped Sri Lanka get to this position. So the first, since 1945, Sri Lanka has been providing free education to its citizens, which has resulted in almost a 92% literacy rate, and 80% or so of the population has received some sort of secondary education. Similarly, in 1951, Sri Lanka began a universal healthcare program, which has led to a drastic increase in life expectancy. And so, when you look at the Human Development Index, one of the main components of it is in long and healthy life. So, this investment in healthcare has really helped boost Sri Lanka in the rankings. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't note that kind of this is an unequal development. So, if you take a look at the Human Development Index rankings. The southern province in Sri Lanka has the highest human capital index, whereas in the north province and the east province, that's where it's kind of lower. So the southern province is where the, the Rajapaksas, the political family who was in charge of Sri Lanka until recently. That's where their base of power is. So, for example, Mahinda Rajapaksa, the former president and prime minister, his home base is Hambantota. And so that's where you see kind of this high level of human development. On the flip side, though, where you see a large concentration of Tamils, that's where you see the lowest amount of human development. So, for example, in the northern province, which is where Jaffna is, or the eastern province where Trincomalee is, so Trincomalee was one of the bases of Tamils during the Sri Lankan Civil War, and the eastern province was under control of the Tamil Tigers during the Sri Lankan Civil War. Those have not seen as much development as the rest of the country. And so this is actually one of the aspects of the economic crisis that I personally am worried about, is that there could be a very unequal recovery. And when you look at the current economic crisis, the poverty line has effectively doubled and 50% of the country may be classified as poor by the end of the year. And that's due primarily to food inflation and the devaluation of the rupees. Inflation is currently estimated at about 64%. It could be much higher whereas food inflation is currently estimated at about 90%. So there are a lot of concerns about what Sri Lanka's economy will look like coming out of this crisis.
0: Thank you so much for that very well thought out response, Akhil. Muhammad Ali, I wanted to get your take on this idea of food inflation. It is something that we see taking hold across South Asia, but also across the world as supply chains have been disrupted. Can we talk about food inflation in South Asia as a whole?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, food inflation, it's ironic that these are countries in South Asia, I mean, including Sri Lanka, but also India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, have been in the past few centuries now. I mean, if we're thinking the colonial context, I mean, the Punjab in the Indian subcontinent was the breadbasket, not only of the Indian subcontinent, but was also exporting crops. I mean, if you're thinking The famine of Bengal that occurred because food grain, I mean, besides drought and other issues, but food grain was being sent, you know, to the fronts of the world war while the Bengalis were starving. And over time, I mean, obviously there's been, you know, this move away from subsistence farming around the world and the introduction of cash crops. But the way in which that this has happened in In places like South Asia, which had been colonized, because of the way that sort of commodity prices are structured, they have created a range of problems. The manner in which the Green Revolution, for instance, was implemented with its reliance on mechanization and use of pesticides and fertilizer and the land degradation caused by the Green Revolution, the way that irrigation systems were set up. I mean, it's not to say that there's no room for modernization and efficiency in agriculture. But when there's a convoluted sort of supply chain where, to give you a common sense example, where we go and buy a cup of coffee that costs 4 or $5, and the coffee bean, which is the vital ingredient for a cup of coffee, is being not even paid pennies of that several dollars that we pay for our cup of coffee, then just goes to show how even those growing food grains in Places like South Asia and elsewhere have very little, you know, food security and especially those who are growing now cash crop, right? I mean, be it cotton or be it other sort of com- these basic commodities when they are not being paid well in this global production system where it's the, it's the brand and the style of the shirt that matters, not the cotton that goes into it, right? then they have very little sort of fungibility. I mean, uh, they have very little sort of cash in hand to purchase food, right? It's these kind of distortions. But coming back to sort of thinking about Sri Lanka in particular, and yes, of course, food inflation here has become a serious problem. If we look back at like World Bank figures, I mean, you know, around 10, 12 years ago, poverty had been estimated to have fallen to under 10%, right? And which was considered to be remarkable progress because it had more than halved since the preceding decade. So while thinking of and measuring poverty using these sort of income-based criteria, I mean, there's debates and contentions around that. But now look at how poverty has spiked, right? I mean, with this food inflation, and I completely agree with Akil that the way in which Sri Lanka has grown, I mean, yes, it has had welfare policies and health and education. I mean, it had compared to the Indian subcontinent, it did not have a bloody partition, you know, independence occurred because the British Empire was withering. The Indian subcontinent had struggled and, you know, catalyzed that sort of, you know, breaking away from colonial Britain. And Sri Lanka kind of didn't have that turbulent a break from you know colonization. However, you know, Sri Lanka suffered long times. Um, and we can talk about this more when we talk about the Tamil and the Sinhalese problem, because this was a direct, the tensions between Sri Lankans, right, I mean, the Tamils and the Sinhalese were an outcome of divide and rule policies, right, where the British had taken a minority, and not only in Sri Lanka, I mean, even in Rwanda, if you look at the Tutsis and and the Hutus, right, so they taken a minority and given it a relative amount of power to rule over the Sinhalese majority, Sinhalese Buddhist majority, and then when they went away, there was all this pent up frustration, right? And the lack of accommodation of Tamils who were relatively educated, but were thought to have been complicit with the colonizer, but they were sort of not accommodated in Sri Lanka. And that sparked over time, built up this and sparked that uneven process of trickling down of economic benefits in Tamil areas, in the north of the country sparked a very bloody and civil war in the country. And again, we might see that kind of inequity at play as Sri Lanka tries to get its house in order.
0: Thank you, Muhammad Ali. Akhil, I want to pick up on that point about how the socioeconomic crisis right now is impacting ethnic minorities and Tamils in a different way than it is the rest of Sri Lanka. Can you speak to that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think what Mohammed Ali mentioned about how there's always this tension between the Tamils and the Sinhalese. And this also goes to kind of the U.S.-Sri Lanka relationship, because the U.S. relationship with Sri Lanka has often been focused on concerns for human rights and urging reconciliation, whereas you have a Sinhalese majority, which believes it should be lauded for winning the civil war and for defeating this terrorist group. So right now, what you see in Sri Lanka, I mean, the protest movement kind of spanned the entire island. And there were concerns when, for example, former President Gotabaya Rajapaksa was elected president about his treatment of minorities. I mean, he came to power on the back of the Easter bombing attacks, and you started to see more attacks on Muslim minorities. President Gotabaya Rajapaksa is best known for being the defense secretary during the Sri Lankan civil war, when his brother Mahinda was the president. During that time, his nickname was the man with the white van for the disappearance of various Tamil activists. And that's a reputation that has stayed with him. And it's very much the case that there has been no accountability. There's been no efforts at reconciliation. And I think there is a fear that this economic crisis could exacerbate the human rights crisis. As I mentioned earlier, you've seen the Tamil-dominated provinces have lower development scores on the Human Development Index. You've also got Sri Lanka's principal social protection program, the Samurdhi, which translates to prosperity. It's known to be corrupt and ineffective. According to UNICEF, transfer values are low, and the majority of children are excluded from the program. Again, like this can all be targeted towards Sinhalese and Tamils are left out of the development stage. And then when you look at what's happened since the protests have been ongoing and since the downfall of President Rajapakse, it is very concerning. Now, President Ranil Wickremesinghe, he is often called on social media, uh, Ranil Rajapakse for his unwillingness to prosecute the Rajapaksas for their crimes against humanity, for the unwillingness to look into the Easter bombing attacks and it is worth noting that Ranil is in power due to the support of the Rajapaksa's party, the SLPP. So there hasn't really been any incentive for him to look forward and to focus on the reconciliation angle. And actually, since Ranil has come to power, there has still been a state of emergency in place. And he has taken to using the military and police to arrest protesters and student leaders under the Prevention of Terrorism Act. At the same time, there is still a culture of surveillance and militarization in the north and east of the country, which incidentally are where Tamils are primarily located. So yesterday, actually, there was a UN Human Rights Council report that was released on Sri Lanka, which kind of for the first time links the economic crisis to human rights concerns. And there's going to be a resolution at the UN Human Rights Council later this month, which Sri Lanka is opposing. But it shows that the international community is still paying attention to the human rights situation. Samantha Power, the USAID administrator, is heading to Sri Lanka this week, where she's expected to meet with Ranulwakramasinghe. Her background, of course, is in human rights, and she has a lot of experience on the Sri Lankan human rights issue. I expect that she will push it quite vociferously. Now, what reaction she'll get? I think there will be a little bit of a pushback from the Sri Lankan government, especially from Ranil. But at the same time, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there is going to be this unequal recovery and just pivoting to the economic crisis for a second. One thing that I have advocated for, and I think Sri Lanka would go a long way in doing this, is it needs to reduce its amount of expenditure on defense. That is money that can be used for development and for investment in social welfare programs, et cetera. Since the end of the Civil War, there is no need to have such a high percentage of GDP spent on defense. But this is the situation where we're at. That kind of leads into the concerns about this economic crisis having a more devastating impact on Tamils and other religious ethnic minorities. Now, Sri Lanka's inability to deal with the human rights situation also could have economic repercussions because one of Sri Lanka's largest exports is textiles and it has access to the EU's generalized system of preferences plus program, which is a preferential trading program, which because it's GSP plus, allows textiles to be exported to the EU duty free. The EU is Sri Lanka's largest market. If the EU finds that Sri Lanka has violated human rights and has not made substantial progress on it, Sri Lanka could lose that GSP plus benefit, which would just further exacerbate the economic crisis.
0: Akhil, you mentioned that the EU is one of Sri Lanka's major trading partners. Can we talk about some of Sri Lanka's other partners? In terms of great power competition, how is Sri Lanka able to balance its ties with the US and India on one hand and China on the other?
1: That is always the question of the day. So, Sri Lanka is primarily caught in the power competition between India and China in the geopolitical rivalry between India and China. And I would argue that Sri Lanka's dislike of India at times has pushed it more towards China, which has exacerbated this crisis. So, During the Sri Lankan Civil War, India had supported the Tamils in the north, while China was actually responsible for arming the Sinhalese majority and developed close ties with the Rajapaksas. So when the Sri Lankan Civil War ends, the Rajapaksas have a very good relationship with China. And I think when we saw Gotabaya Rajapaksa get elected as president in 2019, the Chinese were ecstatic about it. India tried first-mover advantage. It tried to go meet with Gautabaya. But ultimately, he continued Mahinda's policies of favoring the Chinese because what the Chinese did is they basically exported a model to Sri Lanka where they invested in the political elite and gave them loans for commercially unviable projects. When you think about Hambantota, when you think about the Lotus Tower, when you think about empty airports across Sri Lanka, these were politically important projects from Mahinda when he was president, the Chinese were more than willing to finance it. With Hambantota Port, worth noting that it was offered to India first, but India found it to be commercially unviable, and thus Mahinda then approached China to help finance it, because this was a politically important project for him. Now, these Chinese loans, often it is said that Sri Lanka is caught in a Chinese debt trap. I would push back on that narrative just a little bit. I would argue Sri Lanka is more caught in a strategic trap where it has become so indebted to China that it has to make policies that favor Chinese interests. So why do I say that it's not a Chinese debt trap? Well, when you look at the overall numbers, China accounts for about 10% of the official bilateral loans. When you include loans to state-owned enterprises, that number shoots up to about 16 to 17%. In contrast, though, Sri Lanka's international sovereign bondholders, private investors own about 39% of Sri Lanka's overall debt. So. It's a bit of misinterpretation to say that China's bankroll, Sri Lanka, is responsible for Sri Lanka being in the situation it's in. However, where has China used its muscle? So there have been a number of projects in Sri Lanka which have benefited Chinese interests. So, for example, I believe it was Eastern Container Terminal Project was being developed jointly by the Adani Group in India, Japan, and the Sri Lankan government. Under pressure from the Chinese, this project was cancelled in light of sovereign interests, but the project was awarded to China Harbor Engineering Company. The Colombo Port City Bill was pushed forward by the Chinese and created an extrajudicial authority, which does not report to parliament. And actually, Chinese representatives were on the board of the Colombo Port City. There was also the cancellation of the Japan light rail project. So Sri Lanka has been pressured by China to take certain decisions that have benefited Chinese interests. As this economic crisis has evolved though, you've seen the balance of power shift more towards India. So India has stepped in with more than $4 billion worth of assistance to Sri Lanka, both in the form of more loans, but also in humanitarian assistance. In contrast, China has provided some rice donations, but other than that, it hasn't really been present in the economic debate. And that's important because Sri Lanka has just come to an agreement with the IMF on a staff level agreement. But for it to get the money from the IMF, it needs to come to an agreement with its creditors on how to restructure or refinance or revalue the debt, so to say. Until that happens, Sri Lanka will not get the IMF money. So that makes China a very, very important player. And you've seen Sri Lanka approach China. President Wikrami has publicly urged China to take on a more constructive stance. But I think you see this power competition between India and China playing out in Sri Lanka's economic crisis. For example, recently when a Chinese spy ship was supposed to land at Hambantota for refueling, India protested and Sri Lanka denied entry. China, however, then came in and said, if you don't allow the ship to come, we will not work with you on the debt situation. So this is where kind of the tensions between India and China are really playing out into Sri Lanka's economic
0: situation. Sayyid Muhammad Ali, did you have anything that you wanted to add to those comments on strategic competition in Sri Lanka?
2: Absolutely, Mena. So I think that Akeel has touched on the most salient issues that are, you know, I think on, on the minds of South Asia and Sri Lanka waters at present. But I do think that there's some sort of contextualization is in order. So while I, you know, and I, and I want to do that vis-a-vis sort of the role of the US, China and India, right? These three players, but I mean, some, some back, uh, info, if you will. So I think first of all, with India, it's understandable, right? Because India and Sri Lanka being, you know, Ceylon just being across Across the pond, if you will. I mean, there's even Hindu mythology which talks about Hanuman jumping over into um, into Ceylon, into ancient Sri Lanka at the time from the Ramayana, I believe. But so there's the Tamils actually have been going to Sri Lanka for millennia, and it's interesting. And I mean, how ethnicity and nationalism sort of comes to the fore and, like, the issue of race, right? I mean, these are blurry lines. So who's Sinhalese and who's Tamil? I mean, the colonial administrative machinery kind of sort of reified and sort of exacerbated these ethnic cleavages. But the point I'm trying to make here is that in Tamil Nadu, there's a lot of Tamils in India as well. So, you know, when we started seeing this... Growing antagonism between the Tamil and Sinhalese majority and the Tamil minority in Sri Lanka and then the creation of the LTTE, which was also became increasingly brutal over time as it became more desperate. Initially, India was actually supportive of, you know, and because of pressure of its own Tamil population, it was supportive of the cause of Tamil liberation, perhaps, and and autonomy. And over time, I mean, people say that Sri Lanka became India's Vietnam, because India then subsequently decided there was some kind of a peace negotiation between The Sinhalese government and the Tamils and India sent in boots on the ground trying to preserve the peace. But then it ruffled feathers with the LTTE. There were skirmishes. And this was during Rajiv Gandhi, Indra Gandhi's son, you know, during his time. And you had the first known sort of female suicide bomber came and assassinated a sitting prime minister of India. And that's really when the LTTE and, you know, the Tamil Liberation Front started getting a bad rap, started being labeled as a terrorist organization, right? So India has this long-term engagement, I think, with Sri Lanka, which I think now one can merge background info with What's been going on more recently with India making overtures and in India has been also been wary of growing Chinese involvement. And while there was more disdain, growing disdain of the international community, China saw perhaps an opportunity in China and even Pakistan, for that matter, was supporting the Sinhalese government against the LTTE. And so... China uh, saw an opportunity to bolster its relationship with Sri Lanka. The Rajapaksas were uh, in power at the time, you know, with one brother being the prime minister, the other one being the defense minister. And they said their sort of counter-terrorism, counter strategy was that ignore all external noise and now go for it and just get them. Because, you know, the Tamils had also started by that time. The LTTE, they was pressing the Tamil population, not letting any other voice Come more accommodative, sort of more conciliatory voice come to the fore. They started using child soldiers, bombing, I mean, Colombo and other places. There were checkpoints all over the Sinhalese population. The Sri Lankan population was sick of it. And using the language of sort of terrorism, right? I mean, so they completely, you know, kind of longstanding disgruntlement and desire for separatism was all discredited by this newfound language of the global war on terror and terrorism equating sort of all disgruntlement with acts of terror and discrediting it completely. So that happened in China. Then saw this opportunity and subsequently came in and tried to align its BRI interests in Sri Lanka and brought in sort of the Tota port. And this is why the US and other countries say this Chinese predatory lending, debt diplomacy, etc., because. When Sri Lanka couldn't foot the bill, they took over the Hambantota port, which is thought to be the string of pearls strategy to encircle India. So obviously, India is concerned. But let me say lastly, a little bit about the role of the U.S. and Great Britain, which is also quite interesting. So, A, not only the language of the global war on terror had been used by different states, including India, including Sri Lanka, In its fight with the LTTE in India, it was used against the Kashmiris. In Pakistan, against the Baloch. So this idea of the U.S. and Great Britain and the international community having a lot of disdain for the Rajapaksas and how ham-fistedly and brutally they crushed the LTTE, well, several years ago, the U.S. and Great Britain, and this is right after 9-11, you know, had the chance of really pushing this ongoing process by the Norwegians to broker peace between Tamils and the Sri Lankan state. At that time, post 9/11, President Bush and Tony Blair they felt reluctant in really backing the Norwegian peace process, which would have implied greater autonomy for the Tamils, right and In their worldview, there was need for sort of relying on these unitary state actors. Even they were authoritarian in Pakistan. They did great business with General Musharraf and helped him stay in power for around a decade. So Blair and Bush were kind of reluctant to support the Norwegian peace process and have these kind of like one very autonomous Jaffna Peninsula in the north of Sri Lanka. So they backed down. I mean, that's when the Rajapaksas went at it, right, to decimate the LTT and the process caused a lot of collateral damage. So while there was distaste by the US and by Great Britain at that collateral damage, right, they themselves, this is not me saying, this is like a people's tribunal in Dublin said that both these leaders share a lot of blame for the almost the genocidal violence that occurred in Sri Lanka vis-a-vis the Tamils. So, you know, there's this broader context in which these things have been playing out. But yes, at the moment, there is there is China is important because lest it give some fiscal space, it's going to be difficult for the IMF. And let's remember, the U.S. talks about also when the international community talks about predatory Chinese lending, it's not to say that China's sort of aid model is can be very sort of mercantilist. Let's also remember that, I mean, countries like Sri Lanka and so many others in South Asia have undergone decades of structural adjustment, which are IMF and World Bank policies, right? And That has not exacerbated these intrinsic structural inequalities. The market mechanism becomes asymmetrical and skewed in this part of the world, right? And so it's not to say that just because they're going to get an IMF loan, it's all going to be hunky-dory, right? And the fear of inequities playing out along those ethnic divides remains a fear.
0: Akhil, would you like to add on to that?
1: Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to pick up on that last point about the IMF because I think Muhammad Ali is absolutely right. There tends to be a view that the IMF program will be the be all fix all for Sri Lanka. It won't be. And there's a very good chance that Sri Lanka will wind up in this situation again in the next couple of years because until it makes the structural changes necessary and kind of looks to grow the economy in a way that benefits all instead of benefiting a few, I think Sri Lanka is going to find itself back in this position. One quick example. If you look at the taxation measures, the IMF, and this is true across South Asia, I mean, in Pakistan as well, you see the IMF pushing to expand the tax base by increasing consumption taxes, increasing fuel prices, electricity prices. But at the end of the day, the people that it hits the most are the ones who are the most vulnerable. Until you kind of expand the tax net to ensure the capture of elites, then we're just going to keep finding ourselves in these revenue generation problems, which then impacts Sri Lanka's ability to invest in its people. I'll just give one quick example is that there used to be a mansion tax where you got taxed on the size of your house. That was in the budget. However, due to outside pressure, it never actually collected a single rupee in revenue. And two years later, it was quietly excised from the budget. Tobacco can be one of the biggest revenue generators in Sri Lanka. However, tobacco tax rate has been cut tremendously Who does that benefit? It benefits rich. And so while the IMF program will help, it won't solve Sri Lanka's structural issues. And it's worth noting that Sri Lanka has been in, I think, 16 different IMF programs. And it keeps finding itself back in this position. I think there's a lot of examples from Pakistan that are applicable to Sri Lanka as well, and perhaps even to Bangladesh.
0: I'd like to move on and talk about Bangladesh. Can we talk about the economic problems that Bangladesh is facing, despite the fact that it did quite well, given its dire situation when it separated from Pakistan in 1971?
1: Absolutely. So I would say that in the U.S., Bangladesh is the biggest country that no one knows anything about. And I think it's one of the most important countries that there isn't enough attention paid to. And as rightly said, when Bangladesh separated from Pakistan in 1971, There was a question about what path it would take, but Bangladesh has become an export powerhouse, primarily on the back of its garment to export industry. So in India, you see the Make in India program where Prime Minister Narendra Modi wanted manufacturing to be about 25% of the Indian economy by 2022. That's not going to happen. And in fact, manufacturing has actually decreased as a percentage of the Indian economy. In Bangladesh, though, it has hit those numbers. Garment exports account for about 80% of all of Bangladesh's exports. And Bangladesh has also done well on a number of other development indicators, including women's employment. So the garment industry employs a significant amount of women laborers. And so that's helped with the women's empowerment. It's helpful on kind of birth control. And, for example, Bangladesh's birth rate is, I believe, it's lower than India. It's not facing the same population crisis that India is facing. And Bangladesh last year, it was announced that it would graduate from lesser developing country status to developing country status by 2026, which was a huge mark of pride for Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina. There were some arguments within Bangladesh that they should not go ahead with that, that they should remain a lesser developed country because of the discretionary loans that Bangladesh would get as a result of being a lesser developed country. Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has long seen this as part of her legacy to have Bangladesh graduate from lesser developing country status. So that's why it was kind of a bit surprising when earlier this year, DACA announced that it was going to seek a preemptive loan from the IMF to deal with a potential balance of payments crisis. Now, of course, there are some external factors. I mean, COVID affected all the countries in South Asia, though Bangladesh was the best performing in South Asia during COVID. And at one point, it was estimated that the per capita income in Bangladesh had actually overtaken India. One of the spillover effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been on natural gas. So even though Bangladesh is a natural gas provider, it still has to import natural gas. And Bangladesh is now in competition with Europe and other countries for a limited amount of LNG supplies, which has caused the cost of contracts to go up. But that's not the only explanation. So Bangladesh has also been having financial troubles underneath the hood, so to say. Right now, you see that there are austerity measures being put in place, including power cuts, fuel rationing, restricted use of foreign currency, and more. And I would argue that there are a couple of reasons of why Bangladesh has reached this point. First is the high cost of infrastructure projects. So I think you can see the parallels between Sri Lanka and Bangladesh here. Big infrastructure projects a desired outcome of many governments in South Asia, and perhaps even the world, because that's one way you can show to voters that, hey, this is what I'm doing. So since Prime Minister Hasina came to power, there has been a massive amount of infrastructure spending. But at the same time, the spending has overshot the budget, and it's unsustainable. So for example, the Padma Bridge project, which was recently unveiled, it was expected to cost about $1.16 billion. Ultimately, it cost about $3.6 billion. The Carnapolitano was expected to cost about $803 million, but it ultimately cost about $1.03 billion. So you've got a lot of cost overrun in the infrastructure sector. Then you have the banking sector, which is under significant amount of stress because of large scams and non-performing assets. Now, the government claims that the total amount of non-performing assets i.e. the amount that companies have defaulted on is about $11 billion. However, the IMF and World Bank actually estimate that this could be as much as $22 billion, which is a significant amount of pressure on the economy because that kind of suppresses the credit cycle. We've seen this in India after demonetization, the default of shadow lender ILNFS, the credit ecosystem essentially dried up. Individuals weren't able to take out loans. Companies weren't able to take out loans. The construction industry, which benefits from this, as ground to halt. So you're seeing the same story play out in Bangladesh. Then also you have a waste of resources in the energy sector. So, for example, the power sector has received a huge number of subsidies. But due to various contracts with independent power producers, power plants, etc., the government still pays these companies even when they did not provide electricity. So companies connected to the government have received about $5.5 billion over the past decade as these capacity charges. And finally, corruption. And similar in Sri Lanka, you can't talk about financial crises without corruption. So according to Watch the Global Financial Integrity, Bangladesh witnessed widespread money laundering Between 2009 and 2018, about $8.27 billion was siphoned through misinvoicing of the values of import-export goods and The growth of deposits by Bangladesh and Swiss banks has grown as well. In 2021, it increased by about 55%, which is indicative of the capital flight. So when you kind of put all these factors together, yes, Bangladesh has presented a positive story, and it still is a positive story. There are a number of issues underneath the hood that need to be addressed.
0: Muhammad Ali, would you like to examine some of the issues that Akhil mentioned a little further?
2: Absolutely. Again, I'd uh, I, I'd say that this is a great way of of looking at contemporary economic context. Akhil alluded to some under the hood issues. What I can also do is put my head under the hood and perhaps look at some structural issues, but also throw in a bit of historical context. So, you know, Bangladesh is a country coming out of this demarcation of the indian subcontinent where there's this curious case of a country pakistan east and west pakistan now being created in 1947 and with the bifurcation of the indian subcontinent into india and pakistan but pakistan has two wings right the east wing and the west wing and bangladesh till nineteen seventy one was a part of Pakistan, but it was separated from the rest of the country by a thousand miles, with a hostile neighbor in the middle with which the country had already had two wars, like Pakistan, right? In in forty eight and nineteen sixty five. And then the West part of Pakistan was quite hegemonic with East Pakistan, with Bangladesh, I mean the Bengali population. There was They were not provided the resources that were needed. I mean, this was the political accommodation needed there was not given to them. And then there's resistance. The Mukti Bhani come to the fore. India also supported the Mukti Bhani. There was another war between India and Pakistan, 1971. And the leader of Bangladesh now, Mujibur Rahman, so the founder of Bangladesh. So it's interesting how Pakistan and India, when they were bifurcated, the rationale for doing so, the basis of it was the two-nation theory, Muslims on the one side and Indians, Hindus on the other. Didn't quite pan out because half the Muslims stayed on in India. But then this idea of Pakistan united by faith, right, didn't also, that glue also didn't hold, right? And you had these Bengali Muslims, primarily Muslims, separate from the rest of Pakistan because of internal hegemony. And after Sheikh Mujibur Rahman sort of wins the struggle for independence of creation of Bangladesh, he is soon assassinated after a couple of years, right? So, I mean, the authoritarian tendencies, I mean, the sort of military gets involved, right, there's a coup, he gets assassinated and killed. And Sheikh Hasina is his daughter. So just talking about who Sheikh Hasina is and where she comes from. And now, a few years later, so we have Ziaw Rahman, who has a military background, and he takes over and runs the government for a few years, and then he also gets assassinated. And his widow is Begum Khalida Zia. So, since that time, since these two sort of early leaders of Bangladesh were both violently assassinated, right, there's been a musical chairs between the daughter of founder of Bangladesh, if you will, Sheikh Hasina, and the widow of the second leader, right, Khalid Azia. And for, during the 90s, we had these musical chairs, and into the early 2000s, I mean, there was also a military regime and a caretaker government in the middle. And the end of it, now since 2009, we have Sheikh Hasina, who has been in power, right? And during that time, I mean, a lot of other interesting things have happened. I mean, the Ziao rahman the Jamaat-e-Islami. You boot the religious political party to consolidate his rule. Sheikh Hasina has since just the last few years has hung for treason the jamaat e islami leaders, right, because they were thought to be aiding and abetting West Pakistan in 1971, right, and were subsequently found guilty of treason and, and carnage within Bangladesh. And that very senior leadership was hung. Some people suspect that it was not only because Bangladesh is a strictly secular country, but I mean, a going after them sort of further undermined the Bangladesh Nationalist Party and right its support base that was being provided to them by collaboration with the Jamaat-e-Islami. And on the other hand, Sheikh Hasina herself has been very accommodative to other religious political parties. And these are religious political parties which take a very hard line on blasphemy, which have been like going around defacing statues. Not as a spin-off the Me Too movement, but this idea that in Islam, you cannot have any representation of human beings. And I mean, including defacing Mujibur Rahman's stat, right? So there's how religion has been used by these, both these political parties has been problematic. And Sheikh Hasina has also been authoritarian in other ways. She used this anti-terrorism force, right? And has used it to target the opposition, which is why Rapid Action Battalion, has facing sanctions by the U.S. government. But, you know, the the U.S. government also sees Bangladesh as one of those countries that shouldn't entirely go over to the Chinese side because of this sort of ongoing great power competition in the region. So at the end of it, while Bangladesh has done quite well, issues of end compared to other South Asian countries, considering where it was, the state of destitution that it was at in 1971 and where it's gone, it's it's certainly been impressive. But some of the ways in which that has happened by catering right to the government sector, by again, stitching dozens of jeans at, I don't know, like a dollar or two per pair of jeans or less. These women are not in high-paid jobs right i mean they are at the bottom of the global supply chain Mohammed yunus who was given a nobel peace prize a prize for peace for use of microfinance which other economists using random control trials have found microfinance to maybe not be the panacea for development so my point being that some of the development strategies used within bangladesh have perhaps been unable to reach to the bottom of the barrel if you will, and there's been growth there's been modest growth and one can understand this why that growth has been modest because Bangladesh has conveniently found a niche for itself at the bottom of the global supply chain within this process of globalization fear headed by increasingly authoritarian government and there is a fear with elections around the corner that if we see more authoritarianism, we might see besides all points that Akhil mentioned that, you know, these structural reasons could also dampen prospects of economic and human development, modest economic and human development growth within Bangladesh.
0: Akeel, I wanted to ask what your views were on how Bangladesh is trying to balance India and China, again, as seems to be the continuous battle in South Asia. And how has this affected the fiscal situation in the country?
1: Bangladesh has found itself in between the China India geopolitical tussle, but has actually managed to, I would argue, balance both sides. So when Prime Minister Narendra Modi came to power, one of the first things he did was to sign the land boundary agreement with Bangladesh, which settled the land boundary dispute between the two countries. Oftentimes, though, India's domestic politics bleed over into its foreign policy relationship with Bangladesh, but I would argue that the relationship is actually very strong right now. And we see this with Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina visiting India just now. They announced the start of comprehensive of Economic Partnership Agreement talk- talks. So this is a very positive signal going forward. For the China angle, China displaced India at times as Bangladesh's top trading partner. And in 2016, Xi Jinping became the first Chinese president to visit Bangladesh in 30 years. Chinese investment is flowing into Bangladesh, it is providing support for the infrastructure through the Belt and Road Initiative, and in 2020, China granted duty-free access to its market for about 97% of all Bangladeshi projects. That said, there are some tensions within the relationship, specifically on the Rohingya challenge. Dhaka feels that Beijing has failed to pressure the Junta in Myanmar as Dhaka had hoped, and prioritizing instead Chinese geopolitical and economic interests in Myanmar. If China were to kind of maintain its current state on the Rohingya crisis, Bangladesh would probably get a lot more frustrated with China because of the economic implications for Bangladesh. And finally, the growing trade imbalance with China is a concern for Bangladesh, as it is for countries across South Asia. While China does grant duty-free access to abroad, I would be skeptical that Bangladesh can cut its trade gap with China. And I think this is going to be an area of concern going forward.
0: Thank you, Akhil. Muhammad Ali, do you have any final remarks?
2: I'll just pick up on this idea of the Rohingya crisis and that certainly is a big problem for Bangladesh and obviously for the Rohingya refugees who have been, first they were sort of cramped into Cox's Bazaar, I mean UNHCR and other donor organizations were trying to work with them. I think even to a certain extent, the interaction, high-level interactions that the U.S. has had with Bangladesh have also been sort of motivated by Bangladesh's willing or unwilling sort of lead on contending with the Rohingya crisis. And Sheikh Hasina several times has wanted to send them back. Similarly, Pakistan was Facing the same situation with the Afghan refugees and wanting to send them back. And then the Afghan government would be saying that we, we cannot deal. I mean, this is when Ashraf in Afghanistan, that they could just not deal with the refugees at the moment. So similarly, I think, well, in the case of the Rohingya, if they go back in Myanmar and it's crackdown now again, recent crackdown with Aung San Suu Kyi and the sort of the reassertion of sort of military rule, what that might mean for the Rohingya could be even more drastic. So, so there is certainly, I mean, there's need. And another problem, rightly, is that China is one of those countries that the Myanmar junta feels close to. So, how they are their sort of aggression is being shield provided the Chinese shield is something that can become a bone of contention between Bangladesh and China. And this provides also an opportunity, sort of strategic opportunity for the US and multilateral organizations to really work with Bangladesh. Bangladesh has been like now sending off the Rohingya to this very storm prone island, right? And, and it should not send them back to Myanmar against their will, right? And so this possible repatriation should not occur. And the donor community and the U.S. need to work with Bangladesh. It would also be of direct benefit to the Rohingya who are trapped in, uh, in Bangladesh at the moment.
0: Thank you so much, Muhammad Ali and Akhil, for joining us today on this episode of Contours from the New Lines Institute. We look forward to having more important conversations about issues plaguing South Asia as well as the rest of the world. We will keep our sentinel stare on geopolitical crises of the moment and of those of the future. Thank you so much and all the best.